Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tour.com. With me today is writer Naomi Alderman, whose previous novels are Disobedience, The Lessons and The Liar's Gospel. Naomi is one of Granta's best young British novelists. She's won the Orange Award for the New Writers, for New Writers, excuse me, in 2006. She was the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year in 2007. She's also written a Doctor Who tie-in novel and has written for multiple online games, co-created the very well-known app Zombies Run. Her newest novel is the fantastic The Power, which I've been describing as an unholy child of the Handmaid's Tale smashed together with Sultana's dream. Naomi, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Oh, it's so exciting to be here. Hello, how are you? I'm better, as we said earlier. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. I am in London right now at my desk in my in my office. Um, the first review of the Power was published today, so I have that feeling of um, like the the you know you know in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when the icebergs are poised to run down over the fjords uh, to carve out the fjords, and I'm just like oh, there's that feeling of like it's all coming now. It's too late to stop it. Well, let's try and distract gonna... you from that. <laughs> Thank you. Let's start with the power, because, of course, you just said it's the most recent of your work. I've given my elevator pitch for it. What was yours? Uh, well, I, when I describe it, I say uh, it's a novel about what happens when all of a sudden almost all the women in the world develop the power to electrocute people at will. <laughs> so <laughs> everything from a little electric tickle to full electro death. And uh, then everything is different because uh, if you if women can electrocute people at will, then uh, the silhouette that you have to be afraid of coming down a dark alley towards you is not a male silhouette, but a female silhouette. And then how much does that change? And how much does the fact that a power exists, the fact that we belong to a class of people who can cause physical pain how does that change things? I'm going to come back to that, that idea of violence, the idea of, of who can cause pain to whom. Mm. Um, but let, tell me first, what was your premise, your initial premise for the power? Was there sort of one idea or an image that set you on this path? Well, so a few years ago, I was going through a really horrible breakup. You know, like one of those breakdown breakups where you just feel like your whole self might just dissipate into the universe. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I was in that state that one is in. I was just waking up every morning, having a cry, getting on with my day. Um, and uh, I walked onto the tube in London, the, the Underground Railway in London, and um, there was some big poster advertising a movie, a thriller, and, the, and the, the image on the poster was a beautiful woman crying you know, with a sort of sexy tear running down her cheek. And I looked at this poster and something just just broke inside me. And um, it felt like the world saying to me, oh, this thing that you're doing right now where you're afraid and uh, you feel horrible all the time and you wake up and you cry, we like that. Right. We think that's sexy. You know, carry on doing that. That's what you should be doing. Good girl. Well done. And... Oh, it just like some some something snapped inside me, and I thought, what is the smallest change that you would have to make in the world, such that I could walk onto the tube and sometimes see a photograph of a beautiful 
man crying. <laughs> like, you know, and to, re- and to know that that was supposed to be sexy and right. to know that I was supposed to, like, be attracted to that and that's the sort of rightful position of men. Um, it just, I was just really pissed off. <laughs> and, um, and I thought about it on that tube journey and, I, and, and, and actually on that tube ride, I think it just sort of arrived as an idea of, like, my, my thought about it was that it would have to be that women were able to hurt men at least as much as men can hurt women. And um, then it just uh, pops into my head. And then I spent, God, about two years thinking about it, um, just sort of working it through and going, okay, what would this power be like? I wrote a whole book in between. I wrote The Liar's Gospel in between thinking that thought, which was in about 2010, and um, actually starting work on this novel. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I, and I tried out in my mind a few different powers. But the nice thing about... Uh, electricity is that that is a power that exists in some creatures that evolved on the same planet as us so it exists in the genome of things on earth there are a lot of electric fish electric eels and electric ray fish there are about 20 different varieties of electric fish that can you know significantly hurt people Uh, a full-grown adult electric eel can kill four to five humans with one discharge of its electricity so I thought, well, the nice thing about it is that although there's something comic booky about it, there's also something very real and biological, and you can understand how that might work in biology. Uh, so that was what I eventually came up with, and um, yeah, then I then I spent like four years writing this book. So I'm incredibly intrigued by the book. In fact, a little blurb from Margaret Atwood on the cover is perfect, really. She says, electrifying, shocking, will knock your socks off. Then you'll think twice about everything. See, that's perfectly Margaret Atwood in so many ways, and it actually perfectly encompasses how I feel about the book as well. This idea of an entirely female-led world, no matter which society, what sort of society, contemporary, you know, the world that you and I know, but female-led, a world where women literally have the power of our men don't and it's physical as you just explained Mm -hmm. which means they can take what they want by brute force which let's face it men have been doing you know forever um this is a it's just a great idea and like so many great ideas it turns out to maybe be only be great in theory the fact that women Mm -hmm. do this because (laughs) as your novel then examines we've got the whole and I'm not, you know, doing no spoilers. I don't want to give anything away. It's a new book. We've got the whole absolute power corrupts absolutely situation. And it made me wonder whether that really was an inevitability, like a human flaw, not a gendered one. Well, so th- my thought about it is, and I understand, I understand that. And there is something, there is something so dark about thinking about these things because people, people have described this book sometimes as a dystopia. And I, and I want to say, no, it's only a dystopia for the men. Right, right. <laughs> um, actually, everything that happens in this book is something that is happening right now to some women in the world. You know, it's it, it's not a it's not a shock to us, or it shouldn't be a shock to us that all over the world there are men using the fact that at puberty they develop more upper body strength, um, and you know they grow taller. And it's significant, by the way. I was thinking about where to put this electric organ in the human body, and I put it like at, at the collarbone. Because that's really the part of the male body that's like suddenly grows quite large at puberty. And then suddenly there's like a lot of strength there. They get taller, but they also get, you know, this a lot of muscle around there. And so it was the closest that I could come in terms of analog. So it is true that all over the world, men are using that. Not all men, 
there are a lot of really nice men, um, but some men are using that physical strength to hurt, subdue women, take what they want. Supported so we don't by the have... patriarchy, of course. Yeah, supported by the patriarchy. But then, then the thing is, if it worked the other way, would the world not then move to support that? Is the problem, I suppose the question I'm asking with the novel is, is the problem the patriarchy per se, or is the problem the fact that we all respect violence? And we bow to the capacity to do violence, and we have not found a way to, mostly, to uh, run our societies without some, some, some service being paid to violence. You know, that even, even this thing where, you know, quite sophisticated societies still feel like the most important thing is to have a strong military or that that's very important. It's still that same thing. And is the problem that uh, anybody who gets the capacity to do that violence automatically gets their, get, get, is elevated, not only in terms of power, but also in terms of we just think they're better. I mean, there's um, there's that there's there's great research has been done on you send out a man's CV or you send out a CV to different recruiters and you put a man's name right. on it or a woman's name on it and otherwise it's completely identical, and uh, the women's CVs are rated as about twenty percent less competent. So, I guess the question in the novel is the patriarchy colon why question um, mark if if we start from you know, the position we're all in as children, I don't, I don't think there's that much difference. I don't feel like, I don't feel like the patriarchy is natural or right or, you know, has to emerge. Why does it keep emerging in a lot of different societies? Not all, but a lot. Um, and I think the answer is uh, because of who can hit who the hardest. Yeah. And, and the societies where we're really being able to, like, m somehow in some way move beyond it other societies where we're becoming less tolerant of violence the less tolerant we become i think the more we see that men and women are just totally equal so like i don't know maybe i'm saying something there about the first world war actually as well which is obviously the first world war was terrible and then it was like amazing for women's suffrage and amazing right. for being able to get out into the workplace and um but that takes extent, such huge acts of violence for that to happen. Yeah, yeah that says yeah. something yeah, like, yeah, it's, it, it takes being that sickened by violence to the point that you just go, we literally, we can't just define a class of people now who own violence and say that they are the best ones. So I think, I think that's what's going on. That's my th thesis anyway. Not that a novel should have a thesis, but... Um, but there's always some in the back of your mind. I mean, there's something you've yeah. been thinking about while you write the fiction, while you write the story. Um, yeah. The book, of course, also speculates, I think, how much of what we understand about violence is gendered, in a way. Mm. Um, I mean, do we really think that if women, and this is the kind of stuff that I was thinking about, do we really think that if women had the power, this power, any power, the physical brute strength, would everything be pretty and soft and loving? You know, would they make <laughs> everything... Like, I mean, Rukhaya Hussain's 1905 Sultana's Dream, which I mentioned earlier, for instance, has this whole lady land, and it's this perfect utopia, utopia for everyone, mind you, where everyone just, they hang out in these beautiful gardens reading literature and poetry and making art, and it's all very peaceful and highbrow, and, you know, it's nice. Now, your world in the power, not so nice, Naomi. No. Um, all right, a couple of things. One thing is that uh, 
the Sultana's Dream, which is, is a great piece of work, and everybody who's interested in this should read it. Um, the, the men are kept indoors. Yes, but they so, don't, we, we never know. Actually, I wondered about that because they sort of don't tell us whether they're sad about this or not. Yeah, I assume mean, they're okay with this, you know. Yeah, like the reason that that is such a sustained and brilliant piece of satire is that she doesn't then like go and talk to the men and see how they're doing. Um, so a, a bunch of things that happen in the novel are based on things that the Taliban did in in Afghanistan, and uh, I a bunch of things in your novel. Let me clarify in, that. In my yes. novel, yeah, sorry, yes, in my novel. Um, I couldn't put all the things that the Taliban did into the novel because. Who can know me? Well, like yeah. nobody would believe it. It was, yes. you know, there was, there was, there was at some point laws against uh, women being heard laughing, yeah. and I thought if I put that into a novel, people would just say this is ridiculous. Yeah, stranger than yeah. fiction, right? Yeah. So, um, and there, there was a Red Cross uh, uh, that sent the Red Cross sent um, a sort of surveying team to talk to. Uh, women living in Afghanistan at that time, and they found that uh, n- it was something like 98% of them were uh, showing signs of depression. And and I thought, well, what about the other 2%? Right. The other 2% were, you know, like had a man standing behind them as they were doing the interview. Uh, they weren't allowed so, to be heard, so they couldn't talk. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, so, so I suspect that if you were to talk to the men in, in the Sultana's dream, if you were to talk to them you know, without their women being present, they would uh, also not be feeling too happy. Nobody likes to be kept indoors all the time. Um, but all, but to your question of uh, whether I think that a world run by women would be a kinder, safer, lovelier place, uh, I think this is the kind of thing that um, victors like to believe about their victims. Right. I would compare it to there's a colonial narrative in which the colonised people are simple, they, you know, laugh and smile all day. They are um, peaceful. Uh, so you think of uh, stories about Native Americans right. in a racist narrative, which is all, you know, they're so in touch with the natural world. And, and they're, they're so grateful for the things you've brought them as a colonizer, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we believe, I think, um, the oppressor's story about what it is to be a woman. And in some ways, femininity has some gifts. Like, uh, it is nice to be the one who is thought of as being um, kind. And so maybe we we lean into that a bit. And the world would be better if we were all kinder. And it's not that there are no kind men in the world. Um, kindness is, is a great virtue. But I think to say that the entire class of women is a kind, peaceful class is a fantasy. It's a fantasy by the oppressors. It is. Um, have you have you read Colson Whitehead's uh, new novel, The Underground Railroad? Not the new one. No, I've read his work yeah. before, but not the new one. Yeah. So this this book is it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and a lot of the things that he talks about are about how important it is for the white slavers uh, to believe that the African American people who they hold as slaves if they were in the position to do so, would not overthrow them because that's how you feel safe all day. So I think that's what's believed about women because it feels safe, Uh, because it makes everybody feel safe if we say to ourselves, women are peaceful. If women could, like, throw a man across the room, they would never do that except in self-defense because women are lovely. Um, Yeah, women are not all lovely. (laughs) 
some, some women are really awful. And I think that is a feminist statement. I don't think feminism is saying that all women are better than all men. Uh, I think I think ethics and the capacity to, to do good things uh, is not a gendered um, attribute. And so neither is violence. Neither is violence. Absolutely not. I think if we armed all the women in the world and took arms away from all the men, I think you would see things change very, very rapidly. And you don't have to believe that all women would be awful to believe that men would live in fear. So here's the, you know, it's, it's like that thing. Um, it only takes one person to uh, shit in a swimming pool for, to ruin the experience for everybody. That you don't have to believe that all men are rapists to be afraid of walking down the road at midnight. Right. You just have to know that there are some out there who would be able to physically overpower you and would do horrible things to you to be afraid a bit all the time. Uh, and so... The, the novel is really about just examining those those underlying assumptions about our world that are true. You know, it is true that uh, more men could throw me across a room than I could throw across a room. And then it doesn't matter if there's only one in a thousand who would ever do it, because if they're out there, then I have to be afraid. No. Unless we arm the women. So maybe I'm going to say arm the women. <laughs> and then see where it goes. <laughs> Yeah, just yeah, just see, you know, I'll just like play out the novel, see how it works. Now, as I was saying earlier before we started recording, I remember meeting you briefly at Worldcon a couple of years ago, and you were saying to Rebecca Levine, who's a, a fancy novelist, that you were at a point in your novel, which I now assume is this novel, The Power, where you either had to slash it massively or you had to go full throttle and write, you know, a whole bunch of more words and make it a trilogy. So I have mm -hmm. to ask, is The Power a one-off novel? Uh, the Power is a one-off novel. What happened was that I had written... 200,000 words and I threw them out all at of them. the end all of them yeah there's wow. about yeah there's about one and a half thousand words in there from the first draft that's nothing um, really. yeah it's nothing yeah I, I kept almost nothing um so yeah that was that was the end of 2014 I looked at what I had and um having been building up to it for a few weeks I eventually decided that I would have to really start it again and I think it was the right decision. At the uh, in the first draft, it was a uh, only one perspective. There was only one main character who we followed through a variety of adventures. And this novel now has four four point of view characters, and that's better. One of the reasons that it's better is um, one of the point of view characters is a man. Actually, I think he's probably the nicest person in the book. And <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah, yeah. He's a decent guy. Yeah. <laughs> decent guy. He's you know he's, a, he's yeah like we like him. Um, and uh, I realized that if I didn't have any male viewpoint character in at the start, then I would have essentially no female viewpoint character in by the end, because I don't think um, maleness or femaleness is like dependent on what you particularly happen to have in your pants. I think it's dependent on your experiences in the world. And uh, at a certain point, femaleness is the experience of being constantly afraid on some level. In, in some ways, and so much so that you are not even really aware of it anymore. And uh, if I had no man in it, I would have, you know, it, it would be like the Sultana's Dream, actually, which I, you know, I dare not criticize, but I think the Sultana's Dream would be a very different book if you went to talk to the men. No, valid point, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, so I wanted that. Uh, so that was why I ended up rewriting the whole bloody novel. <laughs> 
Can I ask who your one character was, the one you oh. originally started with? Yeah, so uh, the one character was called um, Christina, and she was a sort of amalgam, a bit of Roxy and a bit of Ali, um, more Roxy than anybody else. Uh, and so I have a little joke with myself that in the novel, uh, Roxy's mother is called Christina. So that's my little joke that, you know, the character that eventually gave birth to her was called was called Christina. Um but I found that this character, in order to get her to all the different places I wanted her to go to in the world, uh, I had had to just bend her in so many different directions that she didn't make sense anymore as a character. Uh, so that was another reason I just thought, okay, I think I can do something better with splitting this up. For what it's worth, I could totally read another book about these people. <laughs> I could. Well, that's saying, just putting it out there. Please. Well, well um, I think I'm allowed to say that. Uh, I'm, I'm not allowed to say who and we're in negotiations, but I have had... 11 offers to turn this into a long-running tv show really that's uh, fascinating yes so um uh i think hopefully that i, I I'm, I'm hopeful that that will actually happen you know these deals don't always actually turn or into anything forever yeah yeah but i feel like it's i also think that there's a lot more story to tell about these characters okay and uh and and about that world and and i think that it would be great to do it in telly so i have my fingers crossed Excellent. Looking forward to that. Thank you. Now, when you first started writing fiction, you were also, I believe, working in gaming or writing for games? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. My games career, my novel career, I think, um, developed roughly at the same time. So I started working on my first game in 2004 whilst I was writing my first novel. Uh, that game launched in 2005 almost at the same time that I sold my first novel and then my first novel was published in 2006 and so I've been riding those two horses ever since uh to to some success actually I think when I when I started working in games it seemed like these worlds were poles apart and in a way it still does but I actually think people in literature are much more interested in digital things now and people in games are more interested in the possibilities of excellent storytelling now than they were even 10 12 years ago so, yeah, I think, uh, like, like, the time for this has come. I took a gamble that I could make these two careers work, and it does seem to be working out okay. Uh, so I make this game, as you mentioned, Zombies Run, which I co-create with Six to Start, which is a games company in London. And uh, it's, it's a fitness game, which you play by going for a run or for a walk in the real world. And we do stories from the zombie apocalypse in your headphones to uh, make you go further and faster and to make the whole business of getting some exercise a bit less bloody boring. Right. Because it's really boring. Yeah. Were you a zombie aficionado before this? Before I really wasn't. No, I really, really wasn't. Uh, it just seemed like a good way to get people running. Um, you know, like the people who would say, I wouldn't run unless a zombie was chasing me. And I'm like, okay then. That's how um, zombie chase you, right? Yeah, but I sort of boiled my head in a lot of zombie literature as I was zombie literature and zombie um, uh, uh, movies whilst I was working on the first season of Zombies Run. We're up to five seasons now, and me and Rebecca Levine, who you mentioned, are about to go off to plan season six of it. And we've had about, I think, four and a half million copies of that thing sold or downloaded. Uh, so it's it's... It seems like people do want story whilst they're exercising, which is a nice thing for me to know. Um, and I think it's also been very interesting for my writing in that when you're writing something that people 
need to want to hear the next section because that's how you make yourself exercise. So the way the app works is we have a, like a snippet of 90 seconds to two minutes of audio drama and then a track of your music and then some more audio drama and then more of your music. So the idea is wanting to know what happens in the next scene should keep you going through that music and keep you running and keep you excited. So it's a very pacey way of writing. And um, I do think that that's somehow bled a little bit into this novel, which is interesting. It's interesting how whatever you're doing somehow has an effect on other bits of writing, even though it's not necessarily linear effect. But I think I think that idea of writing something that's really exciting is quite fun. And that's not necessarily what literary fiction is. And so I think there's a kind of general puzzlement. Is this literary fiction the power inside? But um, yeah, hopefully it's literary fiction with serious things to say and also really exciting to read. So then I assume it wasn't or isn't so hard for people to, uh, to imagine a, quote, literary writer also writing games. Not so I much anymore, it, right? Not so, not, okay, I think not so much anymore. Um, I think it's still a bit of a challenge for many. Um, I sometimes in my dark moments, I think, oh, God, I have totally shot myself in the foot for being taken seriously as a literary writer with not just pretending to only be interested in literary fiction. And then I think about Margaret Atwood, who has... Who's coming up in my next question, yes. Yeah, she, she's, she's just published a graphic novel called Angel Cat Bird about uh, someone who is a combination of a man, a cat and a bird. Um, and, you know, she has written, she's written The Handmaid's Tale and The Blind Assassin and Oryx and Crake, as well as writing Alias Grace and Surfacing and, you know, a lot of like historical fiction she's written contemporary literary fiction she's written speculative literary fiction so um i take her as as a model there that it can be done if people will accept it and i suppose what can you do marvesh you write the books yeah. that you have right sure yeah now i know you were mentored by margaret atwood who's a huge hero of mine as well uh, and she's been on the podcast earlier i almost retired after that because you know where are you gonna yeah. go uh, <laughs> i'm glad yeah, i didn't but um, you worked with her, I know, on the Happy Zombie Sunrise Home for What Bad as well. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, I read. It's well, lots of fun. So I wonder if, if working with her, as you were just saying, I mean, taking her as an example of how you can be, you know, do all sorts of things and go very right in your writing life. Working with her, did it sort of help you shape where you were headed in your own fiction? Looking at, say, your most late, latest novel, which is speculative, and your earlier novels, which weren't. So... Um, how it works is we were, we were put together by the Rolex mentorship program. Um, that is the watch people. It's like the, the world of art draws from wherever it can find sustenance. You know? Of course it does. It's as yeah. it should, as it needs as to. As it should, yes. So uh, how it works is you have to submit a proposal for what you're going to be working on during the period of the mentorship. And as well as essays on your hopes and your goals and so on, um, and, and then they picked four people to fly out to Toronto to meet Margaret. And out of the four, she picked me. So the proposal that I put in for what I wanted to work on was this novel. So the idea didn't come from the relationship with Margaret. But I think she maybe looked at it and thought, oh, yes, I can see how I would like to work on this novel with this writer. Uh, it, it made sense, you know, in lots of different ways. It made sense to be working talking with Margaret Atwood whilst I was working on this book and um, it's very hard to people ask me this all the time what did you learn from Margaret Atwood and it's it's very hard it's almost like saying well 
like saying, what did you learn from university? Or what did you learn from this very, very significant friendship in your life? Well, the answer you know? is everything, right? Yeah, the answer is always everything in some way or like reshaped in subtle ways which I won't necessarily know about until 20 years from now Um, one thing that she did was she she took me out into bits of the nature that I wouldn't necessarily have done myself we went bird watching in Cuba and we visited the Arctic Uh, we went on we spent two weeks on a ship going around the Arctic and these are incredible experiences and all the more so for them being things that I would not have decided to do for myself. Um, I'm, I'm a great believer in that and just putting yourself in a position where things are going to come to you that are not naturally what you would go looking for. Um, I, I love doing uh, courses with the Open University here in the UK where I just sign myself up for something and then you see what they give you. You know, and, and, and that's the way that you keep fresh water moving into your reservoir. You keep it, you, keep, you know, you stop your, your internal waters from becoming brackish and stale by constantly exposing yourself to new things. So I've seen how a writing life can work. Um, I've seen how Margaret's life works. And that is incredibly inspiring. Um, it's also inspiring that some of the challenges that I face are not unknown to her. You know, you don't get to a point where your reviews mean nothing to you, even if you're fricking Margaret Atwood. Right. Uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't get to a point where um, everybody just kind of does what you say at your publishers. You still have to have those conversations. You're like, I'm, I'm not sure about this, even if you're fricking Margaret Atwood. That's crazy to even imagine. Yeah. 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 And that has been just like, I, su- I suppose it sort of settled me in the saddle in a way of thinking, all right, well, so what I do is I keep on producing work and I produce the work that I want to produce. And, you know, not every book Margaret Atwood writes is her masterpiece because that, that's impossible. Right. You know, you can't have and, – and, and what she has is an incredible – she produces an incredible variety of work and, and I see how she makes her work and how her life is – set up around her work um i mean there are there are brilliant things like uh <laughs> do you want to know how to be margaret atwood <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah so here's the secret i i i uh said to her once i said how many how many books do you think you read margaret and she said oh not more than two or three a day and i was like oh and then i went to stay with them and i saw exactly what she was saying is true. She gets up, she starts to read a book. She reads from, you know, let's say 6.30 till breakfast time. That's, you know, two or two and a half hours of reading. And so you're most of the way through a novel at that point. And then you finish it off after breakfast and then go for a walk uh, and then get on with your writing for the day. So, you know, have a walk, have a conversation, uh, write for two or three hours, then, you know, have some lunch, then read another book in the afternoon. Right. I mean, she's a very fast reader, but also, you know, that's a lot of hours dedicated to that. It's a lot of discipline, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. And um, she, <laughs> she's on Twitter, which is unusual for a writer of her yeah. standing, you know, because and one thinks, how does she make the time? But I know exactly how she makes the time. It's, it's you know, she, she doesn't, she's not on there all day. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm assuming you know, she has a dedicated slot. 
Yeah, she has little slots a couple of times a day. And, you know, she enjoys it. And it's not like her life is just disciplined and fun. I think she's enjoying everything about her life, which is just wonderful to, to be around. Um, but, yeah, to understand that it, nobody's born being that brilliant. It's, I mean, obviously I people... I've got to disagree. I mean, <laughs> come on, really? <laughs> she's well, got to have some sort of genetic advantage. She's got to. <laughs> I think people are born with greater and lesser capacities, but... Um, in different areas but actually nobody nobody gets to be something amazing without putting in a lot of hard yards and uh yeah it, it really made me think about how to organize my life right and um how what a waste of time it is to have arguments with people on social media yes that is the greatest time sink in the world and let us promise ourselves now and forever we will not do it well this is a perfect segue to my next question because i unfortunately had I mean, and I had no idea why. I was mostly being facetious, but I had very large arguments with people. I hate Facebook uh, for this reason. I must ask you to be current, leading right up to this. What do you think of Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize? <laughs> because you know, I'm not personally a huge Dylan fan. I feel like when he sings, he sounds like an exhaust pipe. Um, <laughs> and I'm really annoyed that they don't hand every award over to Margaret Atwood. But a lot of people yeah. took offense at my saying that Dylan isn't the greatest writer. I have no problems with them giving an award to a singer-songwriter. That's not my issue. I just don't mm. think he's the greatest writer in general. Um, yeah. It, so what, it, what do you think about weird, that? Because I wasted yeah. a lot of time with people, and I just finally had to like just yeah. shut down, you know, slam yeah, down on the laptop and walk away. That. Okay, here's the secret, by the way. Um, anger is the stickiest emotion on yes. social media. Yes. So uh, Facebook and Twitter and all those other places would like us to be more angry all the time. That's why they don't shut these things down and make it so that we don't see things that will make us angry. They specifically make it that we see things that will make us angry in order to then keep us on the site. Right. So when you are angry on social media, there's nothing wrong with being angry. God knows this novel came out of being angry. Right. But like when you're angry, write a piece that you could get paid for or, sure. you know, take up some social justice work or give money to charity or go out for a run or something that will, you know, expend your energy. But, like, essentially we're pouring our anger into these places that are making money from AdWords from us. So uh, that's hard to do, but it's good to know. So Bob Dylan, uh, it's a really weird choice. Um, I mean, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't make me angry, actually. Like, I'm just like, well, the Nobel Prize often does weird choices. Yes. Um, you know, that time they gave Barack Obama an, a Nobel just Prize. Say, I was going to say, I mean, they stopped being relevant to me then. Yeah, it's just you like know, so. how, you know, it's the Nobel Prize is one of the constellation of things that can help a writer or help a book. Um, if I were in charge of the Nobel Prize, I would not have given it to Bob Dylan. If I were in charge of the Nobel Prize, I would say there are two things that this prize is for. One is to uh, recognize tremendous excellence that has already been noted by the world stage in in uh, writing books um but uh which maybe you know can like like give that the final sort of nobel seal of approval and the other is to direct our attention to works that we might not otherwise have noticed so I thought Svetlana Alexeyevich, what a wonderful thing to be directed towards her work. I had never heard of her. And then it was thrilling to find this writer who writes in such a humane and beautiful way and, and to have been have had my head turned towards her. And, you know, equally brilliant to give it to Alice Munro and to say, oh, yes, well, this is a writer who all serious right. people who were reading in 
Anglophone readers had already encountered. But um, yes, she absolutely should be recognised for the brilliance of her work. Uh, so there's and, and and you know if you if you were to stray too much towards the every time it's someone that um, uh, people in the West Anglophone readers in the West had not heard of, then you might risk seeming a little esoteric. And if you were to always give it to only you know the acknowledged giants, then you would risk seeming uh, kind of an irrelevant rubber stamp on something that already been done. But I think the mixture of those two things is a good thing. But I can't see how Bob Dylan helps with either of those. Neither neither does it does his uh, num does, does his win bring gravitas to the prize, nor does it direct us to somebody we'd never heard of before. Uh, so uh, it's a weird choice. It, a weird <laughs> it doesn't choice. seem yeah. And like people, you know, I feel like that it's it's not it's not that the person has to need it. It's just that. What are they trying to say with it? It felt yeah. like it felt like a sort of slap in the face to everybody who kept saying Don DeLillo, which was right. funny. I mean, if, if they were doing it as like a let's be funny, then I agree, it's quite funny. It was a weird time to pick, you know, humor all these years later. I just yeah. didn't think so many people would get so angry at people saying, hey, maybe he's not the greatest writer. I didn't realize so many people had such strong feelings about Bob Dylan, to be yeah. honest. What do you think what was it do you think that made them so angry? There's this whole thing about how he's the voice of the voiceless and the voice of the disenfranchised. And I do feel, personally, I feel like a lot of what he did came from, uh, you know, sort of now, at that point, greatly considered nameless, faceless, black blues singers. Um, yeah. And, and, and so so that, to me, and then somebody got very upset at me saying, how dare you accuse him of plagiarism? And I'm not suggesting that he straight up stole stuff. I mean, everything gets mixed up. This is how art works, right? You have influences of all sorts. I understand that. But I do feel fairly strongly that I think... Uh, he, it's not acknowledged enough that that's where his work came from. Yes, yes, I agree with that. And he, you know, he's standing on the shoulders of giants, and I'm sure yeah. he would probably agree oh, with that. Yeah, actually. but it's just not um, it's not made as much of a big deal. Often, I think a lot of people who listen to him and think he's the greatest thing don't necessarily see the sources where that's coming from. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can all agree that Moby makes some great music, but we have to also acknowledge that his his brilliant album took directly sampled from. Yeah. Um, african-american uh, uh, uh spiritual songs yeah so yeah yeah strange like, choice, I, right? a strange choice a yeah. strange choice but i mean that's what happens i guess we would all have our favorite if if we were able to um you know if somebody came to you marvesh and said marvesh you it's all down to you you just tell us who you think should win the Nobel prize for literature this year we would all have like our little this is who I think. Yeah. Um, I saw Ayelet Waldman uh, tweeting that uh, she she would like Ursula Le Guin to win it. And I thought, that's also a great choice. Yeah, I was actually thinking that earlier today. Yeah. Because I think that would, um, she would be a fantastic choice, yes. Yeah. So so we can all come. And like, I, I'm not sure that anybody would have said, oh, Bob Dylan. But tell me, what's next now for you? Do you see yourself heading into any particular direction with your next, you know, bit of writing is speculative fiction where it's at for you now yeah that's interesting I mean um I'm still toying with a few different ideas at the moment I'm at that point where there are ideas circling in my head like a beauty pageant and um, waving and wanting world peace yeah <laughs> all my ideas seem to want world war um uh, so I actually, if I can, I would love to put together some of my short stories into a short story collection. 
uh, I realized that I have a lot of short stories based in the Orthodox Jewish world that I come from. And I feel like there's another three or four ideas that I really want to write and then put those together in, into a collection. Of course, nobody buys short stories. But um, even if I were to you know, do that with the smallest imprint in the world, I think that would be really fun to do. And it feels like uh, that feels like a manageable size thing to get done in the next few months. And then I have a big idea for a novel, but I really want to let it like, marinate a bit. And um, I don't think that I will be always writing speculative fiction, but I expect I will again. And I expect I'll write historical again. And I expect I will write um, contemporary realist again. And, uh, you know, maybe a murder mystery. I don't know. No, I was going to say, I, I think I can guarantee you that um, I won't be writing uh, romance novels, but that's probably the limit of the guarantees I can give. And here I am expecting an anti a pageant novel from you, like a Miss Congeniality meets Apocalypse Now. <laughs> That's what I'm expecting. Oh my God, wouldn't that be amazing? It um, would, it would be fantastic. Oh, uh, if, I'm telling you right now, if we end up with a, a, a militia in Zombies Run that used to be a bunch of pageant contestants, that will be down to this conversation. I hope it happens. I yeah. wait <laughs> with big breath. Well, well, yeah, I'll see what happens. All right, well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions.